Welcome to Are We There Yet? Transport into the Future. This is a series of programs that look at current issues and developments and what they mean for the transport we need, we want and what we can supply in the future. These programs are written and presented by David Brown. Professor Peter Newman is a Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University in Western Australia. He is a long-time passionate advocate for public transport in general and railed transport, trains and trams in particular. He recently, to the surprise of many, came out in support of trackless trams. Professor Newman joins us on the line now. Professor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What is a trackless tram? Well, we uh, invented the term, but... uh it, it's, it covers quite a few of the bus projects that are trying to be more tram-like and in Europe they tend to be electric buses with a bit added on, a bit longer, a bit more autonomous. But this one that we are rather fascinated with has come out of China but it, and it's come from a rail background. It comes from high-speed rail where they had taken six of the innovations that have worked very well in China because high-speed rail has to be autonomous and it has put it in a bus and created a new kind of device that is more tram-like and it seems to me to do all the sort of things that light rail does but at a tenth of the cost it's highly autonomous and very fixed in its track but it's optically guided so it doesn't need a steel rail to run on and it is very steady uh, very hydraulically supported and stabilized with the, the precision of entry into a station that allows wheelchair access and that kind of thing so it's it's tram like but at a tenth of the cost which is uh, huge because you don't have to dig up the streets and and replace all the services underneath the train. So it's tram-like in the sense that you can run a number of carriages together. It's got a good ride. It doesn't. Well, of course, it doesn't have as much noise or smoothness to its ride for passengers. Yes, uh, all of that. We went to China to ride it, and it, it was significantly better in its ride quality than any bus I've ever been on, and I've ridden quite a few. And it's got three carriages, so they say it could take 300, it's probably more like 220, something like that, maximum load. But they're already getting three car length buses, so it's, it's, but it's more than that. It's the ride quality that distinguishes it. And of course, it's all electric. It's got batteries on the roof, so you don't need the catenary, you don't need the track. That is what significantly makes it cheaper. It's also a lot lighter than a bus uh, because it doesn't have the diesel engine in for a start but it's also about the particular wheel structure it's got that's more bogey like and all of that is is done in a way that enables it to uh, have the quality of ride that can uh, make a very attractive transport system but also an attractive developer system in other words you would want to build around it at stations. You've talked about the permanence and, and that of building from fixed infrastructure that does encourage development. Is that an important part of a transport system? Well, that's really where I come from because I'm not as fixated on the transport systems as people tend to 
and make out because if I'm pushing for rail, I'm not just pushing for rail because it's a better transport system, but because it creates opportunities for density around stations so a lot more people can walk to it, a lot more people have access to all the urban services that are in inner and middle areas these days. So increasingly the problem of our cities is the sprawl and the low density character that goes out so far and there are just it's just so far to get any to anything. So we need to regenerate the city and we were looking for ways in which we could do it with light rail and found that this was a better way to do it because it was cheaper and, and developers were keen to put it in as part of their development and therefore you get the kind of regeneration much easier because the private sector will fund it. What do you think uh, encourages developers so much that if we had what we would normally call as a bus rapid transit, is that along the same lines? I'm not trying to compare them directly. I'm trying to understand what really pushes the developer's passion for this sort of thing. Yeah, look, bus rapid transit has generally failed to attract development around stations because it's been very noisy, it's very freeway-like, and it's not pedestrian-friendly. So you can get buses electric and make it better and hopefully that will happen in the future but they've never really done very well at that land development opportunity that we hope for but the reality is it's it's not an attractive place to go you go to get the, the bus and that's it whereas around trains they become little cities uh that's the way China has been building its metro systems, massive new supermarket areas and housing and parks all built around stations so that, or on top of stations, and that's helped to pay for the, um, the systems. Japan does that all the time. All of their, their rail projects are privately funded that way. They get government backing, but it's a different approach, and increasingly cities have to find better ways of funding uh, urban rail because that's where the demand is. We, we really need the urban regeneration. Uh, we cannot keep sprawling and we cannot keep putting more and more cars into the city. So we've got to find new ways of regenerating the city and getting better public transport. And it seemed to me that the trackless tram pro- promised both of those things. It's a way that we're becoming more familiar with public transport, be it a bus transport, transport or whatever, that we have the infrastructure around it. It has the solidness, the permanency, if you like, where it's almost like stations and it's like information screens and so on. A lot of interchange locations, be they for train or bus, are getting that sort of both brightness and information capacity which is making us more vibrant part of it rather than the system you catch simply because you have to you know public transport yeah has had that poor image in the past yeah that's a good way to put it and i think you're right they are information centers they are knowledge exchange centers they are places that can bring you for a whole range of things and I see that into the future. These station packages that come with the trackless tram, the Chinese version anyway, 
they have a recharge uh, capacity so that you can, in 30 seconds, get a, a quick top-up on the batteries. They have, of course, all the card systems that allow you to manage the, the ticketing uh, and little gates that open and shut when the tram comes in. All of that comes with it, but all around it, you would then get development occurring. And it is also what's called interoperable in that the recharge facility could also recharge autonomous little bus shuttles that are demand responsive. So we get the local shared mobility idea happening around a station. You really do build in the quality of a place that doesn't need to provide for parking or have parking for residents because there are so many other mobility options. And that is one of the great attractions for developers as well, because each parking space is $30,000 or 50000 if it's under the building. That's a lot of money to add on to the cost of a, build, of, of a house. So a housing unit is significantly cheaper if you can package it up as part of this kind of development. So it's altogether more attractive for developers, and therefore we be, it becomes more feasible to do these regenerative projects that help bring life back to middle suburbs that are very old and and all they're getting is little backyard units thrown in with no more public transport or it it gives gives another dimension to redevelop our cities and as well a transport option that can connect through to heavy rail or to a supermarket or whatever it's a connecting device, the trackless train. In fact, we are embracing new technology, as you say. It can be autonomous. In fact, that, that should be really a major focus for autonomy rather than the individual driver. I certainly believe that we focus on corridors and so on. But the thing might be that you can connect up a number of carriages, but you don't even have to do that physically. You can do it electronically now. So we are yeah. embracing new technology. Is that something that's helping us along this particular, if you pardon the pun, along this path? Look, uh, that that to me is the cool factor that is making it so attractive. I, I was bowled over by how many people just wanted one of these, you know. It looked like a smartphone's arrived and, oh, I've got to get one of them. And the attraction seems to be that they're worried by autonomous vehicles but attracted by the technology of it. But the idea of driverless cars racing around everywhere, filling the streets and looking for people all the time, just doesn't appeal. Whereas this is a much more guided thing, a much more public good outcome, and it is helping to make our cities more attractive places with fewer cars, and therefore it's better for children, it's better for older people, it's got all of those dimensions to it. So people in local government say, oh my gosh, this is what we're after. And sure, we'll have a bit of autonomous vehicles thrown in as well, but it's in its place. It's not dominating our cities. It's not like the car is taking over with these robots driving around everywhere. So it is a better vision and image for the future, and it's one that seems to fit where the market is going, where people do want to live back into these regenerative inner middle suburbs where they've got access to all the new jobs that are happening, the innovative, creative, knowledge economy jobs. And that's where the younger people are. And so my son, who's 27, just says, oh, this is so cool. Just 
do it, will you? Don't wait around, do it. We've moved away from the old sort of style of years ago of silos of mode-specific bureaucracies and so on. The, the expression mode agnostic has come into here. Do you think that we're putting aside that? And your point earlier was that you don't just concentrate on what is the movement of people, but why they're moving, how they're moving, and what it means to the structure of the city. Is mode agnosticism a modern reality? Yeah, except this actually makes it more mode agnostic. Before that term was being used, when people like me would stand up and talk about trains and they'd say, but why are you so mode oriented? And I'd say, well, that's because of the outcome that I'm looking for. It's not because I particularly like trains. When I first got into trains, people would say, oh, don't you love the smell of coal and stuff? You know, and I'd be, what are they talking about? I'm not a train spotter. What I'm interested in is what it does for the city. And this is an opportunity to do something for the city that buses were just not doing and cars certainly weren't and I could only say trains were now I can see this does it so yeah I've become mode agnostic because the modes are now enabling us to be agnostic because it focuses on what the outcomes are for the city and that's always been my goal. We've often concentrated too uh, very heavily on capacity which of course is one important point yet to build the maximum capacity is super expensive. If we could build your figures, 10 of these devices instead of maybe one large device, then we'll carry more people with the great advantage of we're carrying them in a range of locations. Yeah, I think that's true. And the the capacity thing is, is, um, yeah, you have to be flexible about it in terms of time, in terms of the state of development of an area. And the trackless tram fits in there. So you can do it in outer suburbs that are finding they just don't have the services and facilities. So you say, all right, we're going to put this in and it's not got a great timetable or, or high capacity to start with, but we're going to build it up and we're going to try to build some more services out there. But that means you've got to have the density around it. All of those things go together. So the community starts to transition into a, a better future where it's not just scattered houses in very low density settings uh, with nothing out there. It transitions into being more of the urban model that people are looking for. They've, they've tended to go there because it's an affordable house. Well, that's a good start, but you need to be part of a transition into a suburb that has got services, jobs and good public transport that links you to the rest of the city. By being able to provide a range of these at a a more affordable price, we can get a system, not just a few projects. We can start talking about linking them all up because having one glorious gold-plated solution is fantastic if you're on it, but people are moving about everywhere. This gives us a chance to build a more complete system. Yes, it's... um that's been my great goal. I've I've been running projects since the 70s which were designed to build a rail line or revive a, a rail line. And it's always been, well, you can't stop there. It has to be part of a system. But it's a start. And people recognise that and politicians do as well. 
So in Perth, we've gone from 7 million passengers a year to 70 million passengers a year on our rail system. We couldn't have imagined that when in the early 90s, the first of the electric trains were starting along certain corridors. Now we've got Metronet building $6 billion worth of new rail lines out into the outer suburbs, and you've got the potential to have a system that's probably accessible to about maybe 40% of the population, whereas it was just a few percent to begin with. There's a long way to go, and for me... The trackless tram connects up across those corridors, joins in areas that don't have decent corridor-based services, and you can get that fairly rapidly, get a system that's probably available to about 80% of the city, just in Perth, for example. That's a huge step forward because car dependence is about having no other options and That's been, for the majority of people, the only thing. Now you can say, well, okay, we'll get to a city where there's 20% that is in that category. Then you've got a system that is likely to be successful. More European, more Japanese and so on, yeah. It is a case of being able to put it on a road service. Do you get the ride quality because of the suspension and and that of the train? Or some people have talked about really still to get that comfort level, you need to have a pretty good smooth road-based system. And the other issue is that capacity and, and good service is a matter of priority, not just the nature of the particular vehicle. That's been a problem in tram systems around the world. I think in Melbourne, the best tram is the St Kilda, one that gets about 6,000 vehicles an hour, uh, people an hour because of priority. So we need still to have good corridors, smooth corridors. That's still not going to be necessarily almost a freebie, is it? No, it's not a freebie. And uh, yeah, the certainly getting the, the road surface sufficiently good to enable that to work. If you have big holes in the road at bumpy surface, uh, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to make that perfect. This will make it better, but it's, it's clearly going to need a reasonable road. We certainly were running along a road that was pretty good, but what we found when we talked to people was that after three years, they've had virtually no change to that surface. So the problem with buses is when, when drivers make it swerve, it really does rut the road and that causes the problems that, that uh, get very bumpy corrugations. It won't do that because it's being controlled as it accelerates and decelerates or turns. It's very precise. So it will be better, but we still need to fix some roads and we need to make more priority. 70 kilometres an hour will not happen, which is the maximum speed it can do, uh, is, is not going to go close to that unless it's uh, freely available to. And so all of these things need to be part of trials. We need to get them out there and run them and see how best we can make it happen. There's a lot to learn still about it. And the same issues are going to be there. We're going to be telling car drivers in certain areas at certain times anyway that they will not be able to drive on that part of the road. That will be for the trackless tram. And that's going to be the same political argument that we always have. You know, everybody wants to keep driving and the other people to get off the road. 
well, that doesn't happen easily unless you provide a decent option. You said, of course, that driving the bus can rough up the road. I tell you what, it can rough up the passengers too. I, I long for autonomous buses for the fact yeah. that they uh, accelerate and de-accelerate in a much more controlled manner and that they may well be controlled that if they come to a sharp bend, they're not going to be taken like they're Jack Brabham. Yeah, I take the bus out to Curtin from Fremantle. It's a, an hour-long ride, and I say, all right, this is my chance to do some work on the tr- on the bus. And But some of the bus drivers, they really drive you crazy. You're just jerking around the whole time, and, and you say, well, how, did they, how come some can do it so much better than others? Well, the future will be where they won't be controlling it. They'll still be sitting in the seat uh, and can override it if there's any issues. But so much of that will be controlled for them and that will be a, a distinct step forward because that is the problem. And when I got on the trackless tram in China, what I noticed was the kids were running up and down the corridor because it was so steady and the parents were not grabbing for them the way they do on a bus. Hold on to your kids because they're going to fly around when you turn the corner or stop suddenly. That disappears. And um, I I think that's a very big step forward for public transport. It's a real case, too, that technology is wonderful, but it's only a tool. We have to understand what we're trying to achieve, which is uh, serving people in a manner that encourages them and leads to a better land use. So you would, uh, finally, I guess you would be optimistic then about the future? Uh, Yes, I've always been optimistic because I don't like the alternative. Um, Essentially, despair and fear about the future destroys the political opportunities you have to get anything changed. Nobody goes to an election saying, ah, it's all going to be worse than it was before because, you know, (laughs) the reality is you've got to come up with decent, hopeful options. So we keep winning some of these projects I've been involved in because they're hopeful. And um, once you you keep winning, it's very hard uh, not to be hopeful for the future in general. And now I've got grandchildren, uh, I look look at them and say, well, you know, the the world has to be better for you. It cannot be worse. And, And the work that we're doing now and trying to put in place, the trackless tram offers some of that, is an opportunity that we've got to grasp for them. And uh, I agree entirely with you. It, it's a tool not... We, we, we cannot be mastered by cars or buses or trains. They have to be a servant for us in order to achieve better cities, better planet, a better, more equal place to live and something that we can be proud of uh, not not constantly ashamed of. And there are times when I really am ashamed of our cities and I think, no, it's not good enough. Let's let's do better. And we can. I think I've just caught you after you've taken your grandchildren to the art gallery to see some Sydney Nolan. I did, indeed. <laughs> yeah, the four-month-old <laughs> didn't quite appreciate it like I did. But, um, yeah, look, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have grandchildren and hopefully uh, we're doing something that can be a benefit to them. That's what we're planning for. Professor Newman, I've taken a lot of your time, but I appreciate it greatly. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's Professor Peter Newman, who is the Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University in Western Australia. 
Are We There Yet? Transport Into the Future is produced by Driven Media. Driven Media specialise in communicating technical and scientific information to professionals and the public and also facilitates planning and behaviour change in groups and organisations. You can send comments or suggestions to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. All the participants have agreed to the recording and distributing of their comments.